Governor Pritzker tells Crane's political columnist Greg Hines that he's not happy with the tighter rules enacted by lawmakers in Springfield concerning ethics. And he says more needs to be done. And we go to the reporter's room with Albie Galoon and Ali Marotti to talk about affordable housing, how restaurants are preparing for the removal of capacity limits on June 11th, and more. Especially since the mask mandate was lifted, there's kind of been this big boom of people going out. It was interesting because, you know, housing advocates or, you know, tenant right groups and landlords and developers, the real estate industry, you know, they are at odds when it comes to a lot of housing policy. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, June 7th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined now by Albie Galoon and Ali Marotti here for the Reporters Roundtable this week. Albie, you've been reporting on affordable housing. Ali, you, of course, throughout the pandemic, you've talked with a lot of restaurant operators and here we're, we're facing this moment in which Chicago is about to move into phase five with the rest of Illinois, completely removing all coronavirus mitigation restrictions as of June 11th. Allie, let's start with you. And as you've been talking with restaurant operators, what sense do you get from them right now here kind of on this precipice of, of capacity limits being being lifted? Yeah, so I think that they're excited. Um, you know, there's been especially since I was talking to somebody, you know, just the other day about this, especially since the mask mandate was lifted, there's kind of been this big boom of people going out. And it's been really hard to get reservations. And and that's been true, you know, really since the vaccination rate started picking up back in, you know, late March, early April, even. Um, First of all, you have to get reservations at a lot of restaurants, maybe you didn't before. Uh, It's impossible to get in (laughs) if you don't. There's some places where you can sneak in, you know, without a reservation, because they leave it for walk-ins. But Um, So something that the restaurants have really been battling with is kind of the social distancing, right? Because as the capacity limits went up and up throughout the months, some of the smaller places were like, I can't get anybody else in here with the six feet of social distancing between the tables. So that's one thing that I think is really going to open things up a little bit more for them. Um, We've seen, obviously, a lot of the outdoor dining that started last summer is going to continue this summer. Um, So now it's sort of just, you know, kind of meeting the demand that's there. And I think we're going to, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think we're going to see prices start to go up too. I don't know if anybody has noticed that. I certainly have going back out. Um, Food costs are higher because of supply chain issues that are still there, you know, meat especially. And then, you know, labor costs are up, obviously. Um, So it's going to be kind of interesting back out in the world, but it seems like everybody is really out and about. I was just on the river walk actually the other day and um, there was, you know, hard, you could, you were really swimming through a crowd of people really? to say the least. Yes. Interesting. And do you, did you hear any kind of trepidation from any of them, uh, any restaurant operators about, about, you know, enforcing good behavior or anything like that? Um, no, not really. You know, I mean, it's something where with the masks and everything, I think we will see a lot of those rules continue just on business preferences, right? You know, 
something we saw last week as well was Pritzker signed um, a law basically extending the cocktails to go provision, making that permanent, which I think a lot of bars are going to be really happy about. What could go wrong with people walking around with alcohol to go? <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, I think that kind of plays into this like new habit that consumers have developed, which is ordering to go. You know, I think a lot of restaurants think that's going to continue, um, whether it's for lunch, for dinner, whatever. And so I think that that cocktail to go thing is, is going to help. It's going to help, you know, um, craft brewers and stuff too. Like there, you know, there are provisions in that that just kind of help all of these industries that have really been battered because even with all these people coming back out to eat again, you've still got, you know, a year of lost revenues to make up for. Um, so any of those revenue streams that they can keep coming in is going to help them. So I think that that's sort of interesting. And then, uh, you know, there's still this, this uh, shot for a shot thing, basically, where the governor has said that bars can give a free drink to people who prove that they've been vaccinated. That's short term. It only goes to the beginning of July. Um, but just sort of interesting that we're, I think we're going to be seeing kind of switching from a little bit from the policing of the mask, you know, the mask wearing and social distancing and everything that a lot of waiters and restaurant operators are having to do a little bit more towards, you know, exclusivity around whether you've been vaccinated. So we have a lot of different interesting dynamics going on there. My 21 year old is going to like that shot for a shot. <laughs> yeah. Just don't forget to bring your vax card, right? Don't remember. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like people people are going to work that system and just show up, you know, bar by bar and be like... I did see something where it was like, you can only give one person one free drink. And I immediately was like... No one's going to pay no attention. No one's going to pay attention to that. If you go back, they're not like writing down who they've given the free yeah. drink to. And then to, you, you know? go to the next bar and you start all over again. And you go, oh, I've been vaccinated. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, you really should get two drinks for the Pfizer shot or Moderna shot. That's right. The Johnson & Johnson people get one shot and then... <laughs> The Pfizer Moderna crowd get two different shots. Exactly. I haven't asked anybody this yet, but um, I'm curious how many people are actually going to participate in that, though, because there was, you know, harkening back to a few weeks and months ago, really, where the governor said if people are fully vaccinated and can prove it, then they won't count towards your capacity limits, which was something that a lot of restaurant operators said this could be really very helpful. But we don't have the manpower to, to police that and we don't really want to get into it and blah, blah, blah. So I think it'll be kind of interesting to see who actually does that. But we have started seeing some restaurants that are doing basically perks for people, you know, that are vaccinated, like seating them in certain areas, putting unvaccinated people behind the plexiglass and kind of cordoning them off. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, it will be interesting. I mean, I think, too, it'll be interesting to watch the revenue streams that rev that restaurants had to be creative and come up with, like people that never did takeout suddenly moving to takeout. I think it'll be interesting to see kind of what stays. And, mm -hmm. and if they say, hey, we actually have like three or four different revenue streams now. We used to just have one. Let's mm -hmm. let's see how this goes. That'll be very interesting. Yeah, 100 percent. All right, Albie, let's go to you now. You have been reporting on affordable housing. Tell me about this. Yeah, so. General Assembly obviously was was very busy over the uh, uh, Memorial Day weekend. There was a lot that happened, but one big piece of legislation that really didn't get that much attention was this omnibus affordable housing legislation. And in there were some goodies for residential developers. There are provisions in there to provide basically property tax breaks for developers that include affordable housing in their projects. And this has been a big issue. I mean, it's a, this is a chronic problem in Chicago and other big cities. You know, people estimate that we have about a 120,000 unit affordable housing gap 
in Chicago. And so, uh, you know, there are, you know, myriad solutions that have been pursued. And, you know, one of them in Chicago is something that developers really don't like all that much. It's called the Affordable Requirements Ordinance, which basically up to 20% of the units in their project have to be affordable. And, you know, developers don't like that because that means they don't make as much money off those units. So their projects are less profitable, they're less feasible, and developers argue that as a result, it's just going to create, it's just going to result in less affordable housing, not more. So what the state did was they took more of a, a carrot approach, which was providing tax incentives for developers to provide affordable housing in their projects. It was interesting because, you know, housing advocates or, you know, tenant right groups and landlords and developers, the real estate industry, you know, they are at odds when it comes to a lot of housing policies. You know, landlords and developers, they don't like rent control, but tenant groups are have been pushing for a while for lifting the ban on local rent control. So this is one area where actually everybody came together. The legislation passed unanimously in both houses. The um, the realtor the the real estate groups were in, in support of it. The housing advocates were in support of it. So everybody actually is pretty happy. And you know, uh, Governor Pritzker is expected to sign it. So the real question is, how much affordable housing is this going to create? But right now, uh, you know, people are pretty uh, pretty optimistic that this is going to be a solution that uh, that works. Yeah, that was exactly my question: is what's that going to look like? How much how much housing will this really? create and where will we start seeing this, the movement first? Yeah. I mean, that's an obvious question. And I asked multiple people that, and I I think the closest answer I got was, well, it'll create create thousands of units. So that's not very helpful. Obviously I did talk to the CEO of related Midwest, Kurt Bailey related is one of the biggest residential developers in the city that, you know, most people might know them for their 78 project, which, which is just getting underway in the South Loop. They're getting ready to tee up a 43-story apartment tower in the Fulton Market District that would, uh, it would include 300 units, 60 of them would be affordable. So this is, um, this could be one of the first big projects to take advantage of this uh, state legislation. So you know, I'm sure there will be more. I'm sure that you're going to see developers out there looking at this. So we'll be hearing a lot more about this in the future. So given that groups that are usually at odds came together over this issue, was there any pushback from any group or any, any stakeholder in it? Not really. Uh, you know, I think that there was probably some haggling over the details in terms of you know, how you structure these, these tax incentives. What is the level where you're going to incentivize developers to take advantage of this program? Obviously, you don't want to be too generous because you don't want it to be just a giveaway. But at the same time, you don't want to be too stingy because you want to make sure that the incentive is there to encourage development. So, I, you know, I think that there was there's probably some, uh, you know, debate and discussion over the specific terms. Yeah. You also reported recently about downtown apartment landlords. That's something you and I have talked a lot about on the podcast. As people throughout the pandemic kind of changed behavior, really reexamined where they were living and why, what has so far 2021 looked like for apartment landlords in the downtown area? It looks better than anyone expected. I mean, if you look back to uh, last 
August or September, it was looking really bleak for downtown Chicago, both on the for sale like condo side and on the rental side. The occupancy rate for downtown plunged into the 80s. And by you know late fall, landlords were having to offer two, three, and in some cases, four months of free rent to get tenants to sign leases. Now, fast forward to you know the June of 2021, rents are coming back up. Occupancies are back up over 90%. There's a lot of optimism. You know, a lot of that is, um, it, I think, came from all the deals that landlords were offering. So that certainly is going to increase demand. Now, the real question is, how quickly are people going to get back to their offices in downtown Chicago? And how much more hiring is going to happen in downtown Chicago? Because ultimately, it's the job market that drives demand for apartments. And if more people are working downtown, then you have more people living downtown. Yeah, that will be interesting. Yeah, I remember just about this time last year, it was very, very bleak. It seemed like it was a very different conversation in terms of of rentals and everything that was facing downtown apartment landlords. It seemed very grim for them. Yeah, it's been a pretty stunning recovery. I know. You know, back last summer, people were talking about a V-shaped recovery. And, you know, the optimists were saying we're going to have a V-shaped recovery. Um, and, you know, you might be able to call this a V-shaped recovery for for the downtown apartment market. I mean, it still has a ways to go. It certainly hasn't come all the way back, but we're a long way there. And I think that the, we will see, assuming the trend continues to move in the current direction, you know, we could be back at pre-pandemic levels by maybe even as soon as early next year. Wow, that'll be really interesting. Well, I'm sure everyone will keep their eyes peeled on your reporting on that topic for the latest. Um, Allie, I want to go to a secondary topic that you have been reporting on a lot lately, and that is the Tribune. What, lots of twists and turns. I think that's going to make a really excellent TV movie one of these days. But what is the, <laughs> <laughs> what is the latest with the Tribune? Yeah, so the deal, um, Alden Global Capital, which is the hedge fund that has been the largest shareholder at Tribune Publishing since late 2019, um, acquired them, you know, at, at late May, the deal closed just days after shareholders approved it. And then within two days, the CEO was out and they had offered buyouts to newsroom employees. So kind of right now, we're waiting to see, I guess, how many people accept that buyout. Every full time newsroom employees eligible. There's no year, you know, veteran type of requirement, which is pretty typical in newsroom buyouts. Um, the last one that the Trib did in early 2020, there was one in early 2020, there's one in late 2020. There have been three, you know, this is this will be the third past 18 months. Um, but eight years was a requirement. So now to see none, it's really interesting to see who they're going to get to do it and who they're going to accept because they've said that they, you know, will not accept necessarily everybody that applies. But I, you know, did a story for our print edition this week that kind of looks at basically how Alden could make money off of a company that has had declining revenues for so long. And if you look at their finances, you can see that they already have, you know, in the past, you know, just over a year that they have been the largest shareholder, they've cut costs to the point where they were able to um, have cash flow and, you know, get a profit out of it. So it's kind of interesting to look at. Obviously, one of the biggest places they've cut so far is personnel and those sorts of expenses. Um, it's a playbook that they have, um, you know, kind of seen through at other newspapers they own all around the country. The Denver Post is an example. Um, they There's some data that the union that represents newsroom employees put out that said 
they cut at 12 papers they own, including Denver Post, they've cut 76% of unionized staff members. So if they did that now at the Tribune, it would bring the number down to 30. Um, and that doesn't include non-unionized people, which would be like managers and editors, but that's a drastically small number of people to be covering a metro area of nine and a half million residents. Um, so it's pretty sad what's going on over there. A lot of experts I talked to said that they don't really see, you know, any optimistic future for the newspapers that it owns. Um, there's still a lot that remains to be seen, right? Like, will they sell off some of the papers in the Tribune's portfolio? They own 11 dailies there. Um, there has been interest in the past. You know, there was a competing bid to try to buy the company that ended up falling through. And the plan there was to kind of sell off the newspapers to interested parties and turn them into nonprofits. So we do know that there are people that may be interested in buying certain publications, but we don't know if Alden will end up doing that. They could also, other ways they could cut costs could be, um, you know, bringing down the number of days that newspapers are published. Obviously, like the, the newsprint and ink and distribution costs are pretty high up there on the list of expenses. Um, but what we really don't know is what the end game is, because with the other papers they bought, they bought the the group that includes the Denver Post back in 2013, and they still own that, you know, um, they have not exited it. Private equity firms usually get rid of a company through an IPO, or, you know, maybe they chop it up and use the bits, sell them off. Um, some of Alden's companies that they own, um, including Payless Shoe, Short, Shoe Source as an example, um, their investment has ended in bankruptcy. So that could potentially be in Tribune Publishing's future. We just don't know what the end game is. Um, so I'm going to be following it, but it's going to get harder now because um, it is a private company and Alden is um, pretty secretive with what they do and how they pull money out. So I'm going to be following it as best I can, but it won't be as transparent now that we won't see the finances. That number that you said is so stunning. I mean, it is stunning. That could you know result in 30 people to cover the city when when in its heyday there were hundreds of people in that newsroom. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, like the caveat is that that doesn't include editors, right. et cetera. Um, and I don't know how many reporters are not union represented. Also, like I mentioned, they've already been cutting. So if we factor those numbers in, I think that already, if I'm remembering this correctly, since 2018, so before they came in, um, the unionized staff members have dropped 30% already over there. Um, so, you know, it's pretty significant as it yeah. is just kind of going into this. So um, just have to hope for the best, I guess, and hope that they don't make those such drastic sure. cuts. Because the interesting part, right, is that the biggest revenue stream for Tribune Publishing is circulation. It's the subscribers paying to read the paper. So if you cut newsroom staff, you're driving down the quality of the product to a point where people are going to unsubscribe. So what Alden needs to do to get money out of the company is to stay a step ahead of that declining quality. Um, so it'll be interesting kind of to see, you know, if they can do that and how quickly. Um, and how, you know, and what their plan is to cover a major metro area and all of its news with a, with a, you know, really small group of people doing it. For sure. And the thing about Chicago is that, you know, it's, it's not like other cities in the Midwest that only have one paper, right? right? There are other daily, there's the Sun Times, there are a ton of new, you know, startups and, and nonprofits that are covering, doing hyper-local news coverage, covering different aspects of the city. So there are other places that readers here can turn to 
um, which was kind of like, you know, a point that I talked to a lot of experts about with the end game with Tribune Publishing and the Chicago Tribune in particular, right? Do you sell it off? Who would buy it was a question that a lot of the experts were kind of posing. Uh, it will be very interesting to follow that, particularly all of the other papers in the Tribune portfolio. You know, I know there was a, a nonprofit that had a lot of interest in the Baltimore Sun. Yeah. And there was a shareholder in Florida that was really interested in the two papers there. So we could see that happen. You know, these that could end up being happy endings for some of these newspapers. And I think a lot of the journalists over there are hoping that, you know, they're still holding out hope for, for kind of a white knight to come in and help save them. Well, speaking of news, it is time for us to turn to the three stories that were not on your beat, but that had your attention in the last week or so. Um, shall I go first or you, you have your three ready? I have my three ready. Okay, go for it. So my first one's for Amy, who I know loves cicadas. <laughs> I'm obsessed with the cicadas. <laughs> but basically, the New York Times had this story saying that you should not eat a cicada if you have an allergy to crustaceans, because apparently they're similar and they can trigger an allergic reaction. And um, it's important because a lot of chefs are putting these on the menu. There are sushi chefs that are serving them. Apparently, Frank's Red Hot, the hot sauce company, has put out a bunch of recipes you want to cook cicadas. Apparently they're low, they're high in protein and low in carbs and, you know, or just be careful. Keto and paleo. It's fine. Ugh. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, oh boy. So that's my first one. That's a good one. The other one is this um, supersonic jet story that yes. our colleague, yeah, John Plutz was helping cover yesterday and um, has just been all over the place, but United basically has said it's going to buy some of these, um, these jets from this company called Boom. And I just think that's fascinating. You know, like I realized that there was that that airplane that ran in like the 90s, you know, that would fly that fast, but went on business in 2003, I think, or they stopped, they stopped using it. But I just think this idea of supersonic travel is <laughs> fascinating to me and business people saying that they'll be able to, you know, go to Europe and get home to see their kids before they go to bed at night. And then I think my big question is like, what does that lead to? You know, what's that stepping stone to as far as traveling goes? I, I just think that's fascinating. Um, my last one is about UFOs. And <laughs> do you guys remember there was this report that came out a few years ago about like all these Navy pilots that had been spotting these unidentified flying objects and the government just real well, they haven't released it yet, but um, the New York Times had a story citing sources um, that knew it was in the report. And basically, this report looked at all of these sightings, there were 120 sightings over the past two decades. A lot of them were by Navy pilots. And they basically said they don't know what they are. Like there were some that they were maybe able to explain, but they they didn't basically didn't rule out them being aliens. So they think that it could be maybe <laughs> it could be maybe something, some technology that was developed by Russia or China um, that like traveled really fast and outpaces American technology. Um, but the government basically is like, it's, it's, we know it's not American technology, but we don't know what it is. So they're going to keep looking into it because either way, I think it's a little concerning, but, um, the big headline there was that we can't say for sure that it's not aliens. I think it was only a matter of time before we, we started talking about that on the podcast. <laughs> Big story, you know. 60 Minutes did a thing on that a, a couple of weeks ago, and they had a couple former, I think, Navy pilots on, and they looked genuinely spooked by it. Yeah, the story that I was reading quoted the pilots, and they were like, they were freaked out. And there was this one guy that was saying that there was an object that they saw 
almost every day for like half a year, you know, out over the ocean. And he said that it would stay out there all day. And, and he was like, at the speed they're traveling for 12 hours, that's 11 hours longer than we would expect with our technology because it wasn't going down to refuel or whatever. So. Well, there you have it. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what's up with that. Albie, what about you? What stories caught your attention in the last week? So you're, you, the supersonic jet story, you, you stole that. I, the one factoid that, that surprised me was that the, um, the Concorde was grounded. The last time it flew was in 2003. That was ages ago. It seemed like just yesterday. But I thought that was a pretty cool story as well. Um, the, the other thing that, um, that I thought was kind of interesting, maybe on the boring side, was the May jobs report, which was pretty good for the economy. Uh, we added 50, 50, 559,000 jobs in May, which is lower than expected, but certainly better than the prior month. And you know, I think it's interesting how this has become such a political issue with Republicans talking about how enhanced unemployment benefits are you know, keeping people at home and they're not going out and uh, looking for work as a result of these generous uh, benefits that they're getting from the government. So th- I think that'll be an interesting one one to watch. On the cultural news beat, I have been trying to read uh, a lot about Bob Dylan in honor of his 80th birthday at the end of May. And I'm a Dylan fan. I'm not a rabid Dylan fan, but he's a fascinating guy to me. And I ran across a couple things that were really interesting. One was the New Yorker did this co- compilation of three or four stories that they had written about him over the years. And they had one from 1964 that was absolutely fascinating because, you know, it was written about Bob Dylan when he was rising in his career. He had done three albums and it was interesting to read a reporter's observations of him at that very moment. And then the other thing that was pretty cool was a friend referred me to a podcast that he did called the Theme Time Radio Hour. Actually, I didn't realize it was it ended in 2009, but you know we were listening to it in honor of his birthday. And he does a whole he does a two hour uh, shtick on whiskey, and he's got this whiskey brand called Heaven's Door. So, but you know maybe it was actually at the time I think he didn't have it, but. Um, it was not really promotional, but he was picking songs about whiskey and talking about them. And he did this for two hours. So it was pretty fascinating. Um, and then the, on the music news front, it was also the 50th anniversary of the Rolling Stones' Sticky Fingers album, which was uh, kind of a landmark album in their history. So um, if you're a Rolling Stones fan, go back and listen to that one. That's that's a good that's a good find that um, all of the the Dylan stuff especially that's really interesting that podcast I'll have to go look for that. Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great lesson. Well, it will come as no surprise that I too had supersonic jets on my list of interesting stories this week because I also thought that was so fascinating. Um, the other one on my list was um, Twitter subscriptions. So that Twitter has offered. Uh, so far, just in Canada and Australia, you can pay to have some additional features. And I think that'll be interesting to see if people actually do that. I think it's just over four bucks in Australia and just under, I think it's three and a half dollars in Canada. But you can edit a tweet for up to a certain amount of time, kind of like an unsend the email sort of function. Um, you can organize your, your liked and saved tweets into folders. 
So you could be like, these are things on my beat I want to follow up on. Or you could say, these are just funny, stupid memes I want to save. You can organize them. Um, and then I think that you can kind of customize your interface a little bit more. But it'll be interesting to see if people pay for that. Um, and then the other story they that- They probably will. They probably will. People pay for like in the video gaming world. Right. Right. I'm sure they'll pay for it. Yeah. That, exactly. Right. So the other story. I'm guessing, I'm guessing real Donald Trump probably won't be paying for that. Though. Right. Right. Probably not. We'll see. Right. We'll see who does pay for that. I think that'll be interesting, too, to see who among the verified accounts, like the celebrities and very visible Twitter users, who who uses that and who starts talking about it. Um, and then the other story was the um, Texas valedictorian who switched her school approved speech and used her platform to talk about the tech, the new abortion laws in Texas. I thought that was really interesting. Um, I saw that. I almost picked that one too. Yeah, I thought, boy, I don't know that I would have had that kind of moxie at, at, at 18, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see. She, You know, she's now, like, being interviewed everywhere and, and talking. Her name is Paxton Smith. Um, and and it'll be interesting to see what she, what she does now. I mean, I feel like she's kind of getting in, like, folk hero status with some people, so be interesting to see how that translates to, uh, you know, her, her immediate future and what she does with that. Yeah, that whole generation, their moxie is going to take the world by storm, I think. Well, someone's got to. Yeah. <laughs> someone's got to take the wheel on moxie around here. <laughs> uh, all right. Very good. Well, I think we captured it all. Thank you both. I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Amy. Shabby the alley. Coming up under a new bid, Staples offers $1 billion for Office Depot's consumer unit. If successful, the deal would bring together two of the biggest names in the sector and place remnants of the old Office Max of Naperville under a new flagship. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com morning 10. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Governor J.B. Pritzker told Crane's political columnist Greg Hines that he wasn't happy with the tightened ethics rules enacted by lawmakers in Springfield, saying that more needs to be done. The ethics package includes a six-month ban on retired lawmakers lobbying their former colleagues, more disclosure of the personal assets of election candidates, and a partial ban on state lawmakers lobbying local governments for pay. Pritzker said, quote, I will say progress was made, but he continued, they know, we know, Everybody knows that more progress needs to be done. And he's not the only one. Chicago Alderman Michelle Smith of the 43rd Ward, who chairs the City Council's Ethics Committee, emphasized in an interview that the city's revolving door ban runs for two years, not just six months, and that the inspector general that monitors the alderman has the power to begin a probe based on anonymous complaints of misconduct. Civic groups, including Change Illinois and the Better Government Association, also noted that the ban on state House and Senate members members lobbying city councils and school boards in their district only applies if the member is paid, and only if those local units are simultaneously seeking favors from state government. Those groups and Springfield Republicans also complained that, despite a series of recent high-level federal corruption indictments of top lieutenants to former House Speaker Mike Madigan, the proposed new ethics rules were rolled out with little notice or debate. 
Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun warned that a prolonged trade deadlock between the U.S. and China threatens the comeback of its 737 MAX and the company's longtime role as a giant in the U.S. industrial landscape. He also said that China will be one of the world's most important aviation markets as the pandemic becomes resolved, accounting for about a quarter of expected growth in jet sales over the next decade. But without an agreement in place to restart purchases and deliveries, Boeing can't be sure when to raise output of the Max, the aircraft that is the company's main source of revenue and cash. And that's a critical challenge for Chicago-based Boeing now that the Max has returned to service in most of the Americas and Europe. And rising vaccination rates are encouraging a rebound in air travel. China, the first country to ground the Max more than two years ago after two deadly crashes, has yet to lift its ban on flying the plane. And while we're on the topic of Boeing, the company also plans to test whether blasts of air could prevent germs and viruses such as COVID-19 from circulating between rows of jetliner passengers. That's part of a broader initiative to make air travel safer and greener. Doug Christensen, a Boeing technical fellow, told reporters on Thursday that the plane maker is installing 20 overhead air vents with special 3D printed nozzles to create what was described as a curtain of air in a new 737 MAX 9 jet. Alaska Airlines contributed the so-called eco-demonstrator aircraft to test the new technologies over the next five months. The eco-demonstrator is the eighth commercial airliner that served as a flying test since 2012 to try out 195 projects created by Boeing's engineers. This year's effort features about 20 new technologies, also including a new fire extinguishing agent for airplane engines that significantly reduces damage to the ozone layer, recycling carbon composite scraps left over from production of its wings, making them into cabin sidewall panels, and what was described as acoustic gloves and engine covers to make airplanes quieter. Staples made a $1 billion offer to buy rival Office Depot's consumer business, the latest attempt to consolidate the office product space. USR Parent Incorporated, which is the owner of Staples, explained in a letter on Friday its plan to buy the consumer-facing units of ODP Corporation, including the Office Depot and Office Max retail stores and websites. The cash offer, which isn't for the entire company, is valued at about $18.27 a share, or about 43% of the 30-day average closing share price as of June 2nd. That, according to a statement from Staples. If successful, the deal would bring together two of the biggest names in office supplies at a time when brick-and-mortar retailers are trying to adapt to online shopping behavior. Staples had previously tried to buy Office Depot, but the $6.3 billion acquisition was called off in 2016 due to antitrust scrutiny. Staples offered again in January, this time for about $2.1 billion. Office Depot acquired Naperville-based Office Max in 2013. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to both of our guests today, Crane's reporters Albie Galoon and Ali Marathi. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.